My name is uh, Adam Weinert. If you have been watching the, the devotional series on Facebook, I've been doing those for the past couple weeks. I'm a member here, and uh, Mike and James asked me to step up to preach this week while they're away getting some sunshine, and I, I'm glad to help continue our origin series uh, this week. And today we're going to consider the origins of marriage. Now, most of you, if you grew up in the church or spent you know, any time in the church, you've probably heard a lot of sermons about marriage. It's a critically important topic. And of course, one sermon could never cover so broad a topic like marriage. But since we're talking about origins, we can look at the Genesis story and we can uncover what God's intentions and purposes are for our marriages. Now, I'm sure many of you are married Maybe some of you have been married before in your life, or some of you want to be married one day into the future. Therefore, it's critically understand for all of us what it means uh, to be married. We, we need to have a proper understanding of what God intends for our marriages. Because our marriage relationship is more than just a relationship between a husband and a wife. It's a picture of God's love for us and his church. So if we want to better, better understand his love for us and his love for the church, therefore we need to have a better understanding of what marriage is. Marriage is one of the first relationships described in the Bible, and it's a high-profile theme in the Bible and in our world today, right? You think of any book we read, any story, any type of movie or television show, any relationship that we have with other people, our marriages are going to be at the center of those relationships, Marriage changes us. And many of us, even in the church, we can have a poor understanding about God's intentions and purposes for our marriage. Our world has competing ideas for what the marriage relationship should be. We need to combat that picture with the truth. So this morning, I'd like for us to take a look at the scriptures starting in Genesis chapter 2. So if you had your Bible, why don't you open them with me? And we're going to read Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whether the, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man." For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We're here at the end of the creation story. And if you're familiar, of course, with Genesis 1 and 2, you know that at every stage through the creation, God says it was good, right? God created the heavens and the earth. It was good. He created the land animals and the vegetation and the sea and the things that are in the sea, and every step along the way it says that it was very good. So it should draw your attention then here in verse 18 
that God says something is not good. And what does he say it's not good? He says it is not good for the man to be alone. What was the problem, right? The problem is that the, the man was alone. There was no one with him. And what this is saying is that we are created for human relationships. We're created for relationships. We're created for relationships because we're created in his image. And our God is a relational God. If you think of Genesis chapter 1, when God says, let us create man in our image. We believe in the the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that commune together in perfect relationships as one God. John 17 is a good example of God is a relational God. We are created for relationship with God, right? Think of the Adam walking with uh, God in the garden, right? Adam has a relationship with God, but get this. He's still alone. He has a relationship with God, perfect without sin in the garden, and God says he is still alone. We're created for relationship with God. We're created for relationships with people. We need deep relationships with other people in our life. And specifically, we have a need to be truly known and to be deeply loved and accepted by another person. We need flesh and bone relationships, relationships that go deep and have a long history. I'm an introverted person. I'm sure a lot of you might be introverted people. That means, right, we just don't need a lot of relational exchange to fill up our tank for lack of a a better word, right? I can do that on a smaller scale than some folks who are extroverted who just need that kind of human contact on a more frequent basis. I like to think of myself these days as the king of social distancing. I I really don't need to have a a lot of those relationships. I can be fine without them. But I still need them. I desperately need them. I desperately need to be known and loved by other people. I need to have that relationship in my life. I need to have deep friendships, relationships with my with my family and with my with my friends, with my wife. I need deep relationship. We cannot go it alone. One of my first Alaska stories, you know, I've been in Alaska now for 10 years, but was the 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 one man's wilderness story. I'm sure you guys have heard it. You've seen it on you know, public broadcasting, you've read his journals. We know the guy who lives out in Lake Clark by himself. Just he says goodbye and I'm going to go build a cabin by ourselves and live there. And he lived there for years. He lived alone. And I can tell you, it's not good to be alone. Right? We have that image, especially in Alaska, of one person going out and, and living out by themselves. But that's not what God intended for our life. God intended for our life to be held in deep relationships with other people. We need those relationships in our life. In Genesis, God meets Adam's need for relationships. In verse 18, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, if you've heard sermons about marriage, you know that that word helper means ezer, right? It means helper, literally. But that whole phrase says, I will make for him a helper as in front of him. Or what God is saying is that I will create for Adam the woman that will correspond to him. I will make, basically what it's saying, that I will make an equal for him. God says, I will make an equal for him. And that's exactly who our spouses are. They are our equal. 
But they're not just our, our equal, right? As, as we're both created in God's image, right? We're both people. But they're a helper that can meet us and help us where we need help, right? And Ezra simply is one that supplies strength to the area that needs help. That's who our Ezra's are intended to be, who God created them to be, to be help for one another. If you notice right in verses 19 and 20, you see that no other creation except for our spouses can be our helper. There's nothing else that can suit to be our helper, right? Adam looks at all of the creatures in creation and he gives them names. And again, at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Nothing else was suitable for Adam as a helper to meet his need except for his spouse. No other creation but our spouses can suit to be our helpers. Therefore, I hope you're seeing that marriage is God's idea. He notices that there's a need. It's not good to be alone. God creates the woman to meet that need so that the two as equals can be in relationship together. Marriage is God's idea. It's a universal principle, right? That whether you're a Christian or not, that marriage brings two people together to help walk through life. But if marriage is God's idea, if it's his concept, therefore we can trust what God says about marriage throughout the scriptures, right? That if it's his idea, his concept that, that help us walk through life together, we can trust what he says about marriage. That what the, the Bible portrays for a healthy marriage, we can do those things and we can flourish. Have you ever considered what God has intended and for your marriage? Or think about what God wants to do through your marriage? Because God definitely has goals that he wants to achieve through your marriage, if you're willing. Right? A marriage isn't just bringing two people together to meet a need for relationship, but God wants to display himself in our marriages. Now, marriage is God's idea, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that marriage is a mandate. Marriage is not commanded in the Bible. Singleness is upheld in the Bible. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says, it is good for the unmarried and the widows to stay as he is. Paul says that if you have a desire to be married or if you lack self-control, that it is better to marry. But it, it, it is a good option for life. Basically, Paul is saying that singleness is not plan B for your life. You are not a lesser person, a lesser person in the church or a lesser person in God's eyes when you're not married. Singleness is not plan B for your life, right? I think that's a struggle that we have in the church, right? Especially as you get older and you maybe out of college or, or whatever, you, they, people start wondering whether you're married or not or whether that's going to happen, right? We can be, you, if you want to be single in your life, you can exercise self-control. You don't have the desire to be married you can be single in your life and be pleasing to God. Singleness is not plan B, right? Jesus was single. That's, all, that's, that's the only argument you need, right? But there's a danger on the other side, right? The danger, if you think of our, our culture today, right? Our culture today says that we should delay marriage, right? That you should wait a long time until you get married. Wait until you've got a 
steady job or you've got, uh, you know, your career figured out or wait until after you finish college. That can also be a damaging view, right? We shouldn't run from marriage either, right? We shouldn't date a person for a long time and then, and then you know, string that person along with never giving them uh, an idea of they want, whether you want to get married or not. Don't run from marriage. Don't run from it. Yes, marriage is a big, big decision, but it's not something that we should run from. Singleness is not plan B for your life, but do not delay marriage either. So if marriage is God's idea to meet our need for relationship, therefore we can trust that God knows what is best for our marriage. And at the core of understanding what marriage is in the Bible, we need to understand the covenant of marriage. And that's elsewhere here in uh, Genesis chapter 2. So that's the, the first idea. Is marriage is God's idea. The second is marriage as a covenant. Now, there are multiple uh, covenant, uh, covenants described in the Bible. Think of the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. Think of the God's covenant with the people of Israel, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant that is just talked about um, in the prophets that God is going to, you know, um, renew our hearts. There are numerous covenants spoken about in the Bible. And a covenant is simply an agreement. That's what a covenant means. A covenant is an agreement. Marriage is referred to as a covenant in the Bible. You think in Proverbs chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 2, Jesus speaks about marriage in in a covenantal way in the Gospels. And the marriage covenant um, is a covenant not just between the husband and the wife, but it's a covenant between the husband, the wife, and God. So what are the components of the covenant of marriage, right? The covenant uh, of marriage has commitments that are not just horizontal, right? Horizontal between the husband and the wife, but they are uh, commitments that are made between us and God. So the first we see is that the marriage covenant is a covenant of equals. So look at verse 21 and 22. It says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Right? So God takes, you know, causes Adam to sleep. And the idea here is that instead of a a rib, right, it's saying that a whole side was taken from the man, right? God takes a large chunk out of the man and uses it to create the woman, right? It's a covenant of equals. Both are made of the same stuff, basically, Right, both men and women, as we've, as we've mentioned multiple times in our service this morning, that we are created in God's own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The marriage covenant is a covenant of equals. Secondly, the marriage covenant is a covenant of lifelong loyal love to each other. A covenant of lifelong loyal love to the other. Look at verse 23, and it says, And the man said, This at last, or this is now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this, reason, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The ESV says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You get the picture of Adam finally finding what he'd been looking for when he said those words. This is the first uh, word spoken by a person 
recorded here in the Bible in verse 23. And it's saying that this at last is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? That, that, that language is, is covenantal language, as we'll talk about in a second, but it's a deep uh, understanding and appreciation for who the other person is. Right? It's, it's, the marriage covenant is an uh, identification that this is my person. My wife and I like to, to use the word teammate, right? that we're on the same team together. Right? So whether life is hard or whether life is easy, we could say that we've been on the same team. And that's what the covenant of lifelong loyal love looks like, is being able to look at that other person before God and to say that this at last is now, this person is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, I don't really recommend that you go up to a prospective person you'd like to pursue a relationship with and say, can you be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? I don't think that's going to get you very far in your relationship with that other person. But do you see Adam's deep just relatedness to this woman that God has given to him, right? That this person is for me, that this person is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, this is the promise of future love, that what we're doing when we get married is that we're not promising just to love that person on our wedding day or for the next year, but that we're promising to love that person far into the future, that we're promising to love that person sacrificially for the rest of our days. Now, we all grow and change in life, right? And we don't know who we are becoming as we move into the future, but that's what we are promising for our spouse, that we are not just going to love you as you are, as I'm standing here on the stage getting married to you at this moment, but I'm going to love you as you grow and change for the next 15 years, for the next 25 years, for the next 30 years, however long we have on our, in our life together, that I'm promising to love you in the future. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's the type of commitment that the covenant is speaking of. Now, the, the picture of marriage in the Bible is the picture of a lifelong monogamous marriage between a husband and and a wife between a man and a woman. That's the picture of marriage in the Bible. If you want to read, uh, you can read about that throughout the entire Bible. That's the picture of marriage. The, the, the marriage covenant, right, is a deep understanding of who the other person is, right? It's an understanding and appreciation for who our partner is and that we are committed to loving them for a lifetime, Now, the things that we say in our marriage covenant, these are covenant words. The things we say in our our, our wedding vows, these are covenant words, right? Bone on my bone, flesh on my flesh, there are rib in the side. These are all covenant words. And what those words are is they're recognizing the closeness of the relationship. And it's also a statement of loyalty and commitment to each other. And lastly, it's also a statement of strength and weakness, Saying bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh isn't saying that one person is strong and the other person is weak. It doesn't mean that. What it's saying is that both men and women share this full spectrum of humanness, right? And that therefore they can each be both strong and weak, but that they all fit together in deep commitment to each other. So if marriage is a, the marriage covenant is a covenant of equals, it's a covenant of lifelong loyal love to each other. The marriage covenant also reprioritizes 
all of our other relationships. Verse 24, the words, the, the, the focus shifts from Adam speaking with the, the woman Eve brought before him back to the narrator's voice. In verse 24, he says, for this cause, for this reason, so for this, because of this commitment, because of this covenant that these two people have made, what does that mean? There are action words tied to this covenant commitment. It says that the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The leave and cleave are the action words of the covenant. And what this means is that our spouses become our top relational priority in our life. That there is no other relationship that becomes higher than the relationship that we have with our spouse. Not our children, not our work, not our friendships, not our families. Those things do not take higher priority than our spouse. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? You're living in a very tribal, patriarchal society, right? And in, in, in that time, the wife left her family and joined the man's family. But this, here, verse 24, it's important that it says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Right, if a woman joins, you know, the, the husband's family to take it, you know, as the son is taking care of their father's flock of sheep or goats or cattle, whatever they raised, right? But still that person, that new couple created their own distinct family and made each other their top relational priority in their life. They make themselves the top priority of their life. So the marriage covenant reprioritizes all other relationships. Right? If we think about marriage in the terms that our world thinks about it today, right? it doesn't think about our, the marriage relationship being the top commitment of our life, especially if there's children involved. Right? Children become the number one focus in, a, in, in, in many ways. Right? The Bible says that the marriage relationship remains the focus for our life as the top uh, relationship uh, in our life. Nothing else should take its place. Lastly, the, the speaking of the marriage covenant as a total all-encompassing uh, covenant between, between the two. So thinking about marriage as one flesh. They shall leave and cleave and they shall become one flesh. This is speaking that there's no longer a barrier between the man and the woman. Of course, this speaks not just to a physical sexual union, between the husband and a wife, but to total bonds of commitment that include all areas of life. The marriage covenant should reach into our spiritual life. It should touch our uh, intellectual life, our emotional life, right? It should include our financial life as well. All aspects of our life should be brought together in marriage, right? There's nothing that we should hide or keep separate. Nothing that says this is still for me. But when you've made that commitment to your other, you're bringing that partner, your teammate, you're bringing that person together with you for the rest of your life. One flesh means both the male and the female are fully known by each other and fully loved. You feel like your spouse fully knows you and fully loves you? That's the picture of marriage in the Bible that we are fully and deeply known by our spouse, and we are loved and embraced. 
At the heart of marriage, the scriptures teach that marriage is a lifelong sacrificial commitment to the good of each other. The scriptures teach that marriage is a lifelong sacrificial commitment to the good of each other. Marriage requires sacrifice. And the marriage relationship is intended by God to reflect, in part, a bit of who he is. As we move and live our life as married couples, sacrificially for the good of each other, we reflect who God is. Right? God gives himself in relationship for us. He gives himself sacrificially. We give ourselves sacrificially for our spouses. We give ourselves for them. And by doing that, we reflect who he is. So a good question to think about when we think about our marriages is, can people see God in your marriage? Can people see that our God is a God of love and a God of grace in our marriages? Can people see that? The covenant of marriage and the daily actions of marriage are a picture of God's love for us. Again, Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting and superficial. Think about that. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. He says, but to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be known, like someone to really see who we are but not loved is our greatest fear. I know that that's a great fear of mine. But he says, but to be known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. And it's what we need more than anything. So you see the power that the spouse has over the other, right? That that person knows who we really are. They've seen us warts and all, but still love us. If they still love us, that's a small picture, a small, small picture of God's love for us. Therefore, you see, we have to have a proper understanding of what marriage is, because when we do have a proper understanding, we can understand a bit about who God is and how much he loves us. So therefore, we have to go back to the question, can people see God in our marriages? Because if they can, then they're going to see self-sacrificial love from us for our spouses, They're going to see us loving our spouses sacrificially like Jesus did. So our marriages are covenants or relationships before God, promising lifelong loyal love to our spouses. Our marriages reflect who God is, and they're intended, our marriages are intended to be a picture of God's love for the church. Now, lastly, our marriages are not perfect, right? We have sin in our life. We're going to talk about that. But that does not mean that marriage itself is the problem, right? Our culture, right, is easy to hit the eject button on marriage when things get hard, right? When feelings change, when circumstances change. It's easy for us to say enough, no more. Marriage is not the problem. Our sin and our selfishness is the problem. We're not going to read it, but the, the, the section in Ephesians chapter 5, basically says that marriage sanctifies us. Marriage sanctifies us. So that's, that, that's our next point. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is a marriage covenant. And the third is that marriage sanctifies us. You and I do not experience marriage like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Our sin impacts our marriages. 
read Genesis chapter 3 about how Genesis or how sin impacts the marriage. I'm sure we'll talk about that um, in the next few weeks through this origin series. But as the Bible clearly teaches, all of us in our hearts have sin and selfishness. And even as Christians, people reborn in God's image, right? We know that we're not perfect and we bring that into our marriages. And our sin and selfishness makes marriages hard. Again, Genesis chapter 3, if you want to read about how sin impacts marriage, read the rest of the Bible. See how sin impacts marriages by reading the rest of the scriptures. Sin leads us to believe and think about marriage in the wrong way. In the ancient way of thinking about marriage, we've already talked about it somewhat, but in the ancient thought was that marriage was about improving our social status, right? Your marriage partner could, you know, increase your financial well-being or could increase your standing in society, right? That's not what the marriage is in the Bible. In our modern world, right, marriage is about sexual fulfillment and happiness. You're a fool if you think marriage is about sexual fulfillment and happiness. Those things do happen in the context of marriage, but that's not the reason for marriage. Your marriage will never make you happy. Marriage as God intends and as the Bible teaches is centered on a deep oneness between the husband and the wife who together are moving forward in life in sacrificial love for each other, holding each other accountable and affirming our strengths and helping us in our weaknesses. Therefore, at the center of our marriage for the Christian, grace must be at the center. God's grace must be at the center. Why? Why does grace need to be at the center of our marriage? Well, because marriage reveals new levels of our selfishness, right? The person that knows us the most, the person that sees us every day, the person that knows you the best, the person that knows how you like your coffee in the morning, whether you like your eggs scrambled or fried, the person that knows whether you like this TV show or not, or whether you care about sports or you don't care about sports, the person that knows you the very best is the person that is going to face the brunt end of our selfishness. The person that we've committed to loving for the rest of our life is going to see us at our absolute worst. And any sin issue that we struggle with, those things are not left at the door when we get married. Right? Anything that we struggle with in our life, we know that that is being brought into our marriage. Grace has to be at the center of our marriages. Your marriage, and certainly not your spouse, they are not responsible for fixing our sin and our selfishness. They do not have that power. Only God has that power, right, to meet, our, to meet that need for us. Our spouse cannot do that, but they can act out in love and meet us in grace at that time of need. So you see the power that the spouse has for the other, right? The person that sees us at our worst, but if they can respond to us, in grace and truth to say what you did was not right. But if they can respond in love, right, that's again a picture of God's love for us. We need to have grace in Jesus's love at the center of our marriages because then and only then can we move and respond to our spouses in grace and love on a daily basis. 
We need God's love and grace pouring into our hearts regularly so that we can, like Ephesians says, respect and sacrificially love our spouses. We need God's love as the primary love of our life. Remember, the, the marriage covenant is between us, me and my spouse, and God. Right? We need God's love to be the primary source of love for our life so that no matter how I feel that day, no matter how much uglier I've gotten in the past 15 years of being married, I'm sure I, I look a lot worse than I did 15 years ago. And that's, that's not saying much. <laughs> but whatever changes, right? If Jesus' love is at the center of my marriage, I can respond to my wife sacrificially and with respect. That's the picture in, in Ephesians 5 that we sub, are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that God is going to use our marriages to teach us about himself and how much he loves us. We need to have God's grace and love at the center of our marriages so that our marriage can be a picture of God's love for us. So that is the picture that God has intended for our marriages. God at the center and his love in our hearts so that we can act in self-sacrificing love for our spouses. Don't you see, that's how our marriages reflect who God is. God is a he self-sacrificially gave himself in Jesus Christ who lived and died on our behalf so that we can have relationship with him. God loves sacrificially. Our spouses, the spousal relationship is to be loved and carried out sacrificially. Our marriages help represent who God is. That is and that is the kind of marriage that God wants and what the world needs. The world needs to see that type of marriage. Right? Again, that's not the picture of marriage that we see in our world, that type of self-sacrificial, others-focused love that we see in our marriages today. But that's the, exactly the kind of marriage that our world needs. We need a, don't need a marriages that are focused on increasing our status or making us happy, but we need marriages that reflect who Jesus Christ is, that we put our spouse and their needs above our own. So wrapping up, thinking about how we can go from here today. Is Jesus at the heart of your marriage? Is he at the heart of your love for your spouse? Does his flow, love flow into your life and into your spouse's life? Because your spouse needs it. Your spouse needs your love. They need your support. What they need is Jesus's love flowing through you that can be sacrificial and respectful for our spouse, right? Our feelings fade over time and we change as people. But if Jesus and his love is at the center of our hearts and if he is our greatest and highest affection, we'll be able to sacrificially love our spouse like Jesus loves the church. So that's an important barometer question to ask every now and then. It's Valentine's Day. Great day to ask that question, right? Is Jesus's love at the center of of our marriages? Does his love flow from us to our spouses? Second set of questions. Are you being intentional about your marriage relationship? And are you honoring the covenant you have made with God and your spouse? Right? This is an airtight covenant, right? This is an important covenant or agreement that we've made with our spouses. Are you honoring the terms of that covenant? 
And are you being intentional about what God wants to do through your marriage? Because God wants to use your marriage to, dis- to show a bit about who he is. We've said it again and again this morning, that God wants to show the world who he is through our marriage. Now, if you're married, you hopefully know that your marriage is not just for you, right? You have children, maybe, or you've got families and commitments, and God wants to use your marriages to show how much he loves us. Your marriage is not just for you. It's for the good of the church. It's for the good of our world. Therefore, if we're married, we have to think that we can be a model of God's purpose and meaning for marriage and others. You think of your marriage that way, that I can be a reflection of God's purpose for marriage in my relationship with my spouse. Maybe you're single, you're a single person, you want to be married. Have you made relationships with other married people? Like finding, this is one the wonderful thing about the church is that we've got all sorts of people that we can bring people who are single or people who are married, people who are older, people who are younger. We can bring this all together to learn from one another and to encourage us uh, in our life. So if you know a single person, invite them to your home or over Zoom, whatever whatever you're comfortable doing these days, right? But to be engaged relationally with other people. That's something my wife and I have enjoyed doing for, for many years is helping shepherd young couples as they prepare to make the steps into the covenant of marriage. I find that a great privilege in my life to be able to talk with a young couple as they're thinking about getting married and then as they're engaged in thinking about being married, what that means. That's a high privilege for me. That's something that my wife and I have, have been very blessed by. If you're a younger married couple, do you know older couples that you can be friends with, that you can learn from? Maybe that's your parents. Maybe that. Maybe it's not, right? If find and intentionally pursue relationships that can help us in our marriages. And for those of you who have been married for a long time, please teach us. Teach us what you've learned. Teach us what you've learned because marriage, as you know, is not easy. Teach us what you've learned about marriage, marriage and show us what it looks like to sacrificially love our spouses. And for all of us in the church, we can all pray for our marriages, right? Because we have an enemy, Satan, that wants our marriages to fail. And he's actively pursuing failure for our marriages. We must pray for them so that they can stand strong until the end. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you have given us relationships through our spouses. Lord, and I pray that our relationships would be centered on your love, Lord, so that our marriages can reflect who you are and the love that you have for us. Father, I pray that you would strengthen and protect our marriages. Lord, protect us from the evil one who would seek to steal, kill, and destroy. Father, we love you and we just are thankful for your great purpose for us. In your name, amen.